millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greenwich councillors mount 11th hour attempt to block the Silvertown Tunnel. We ask, two years on from 2020's Black Lives Matter demonstrations, has anything really changed in London? East End public pools struggling to stay afloat as demolition and closures loom. And modern buildings in Britain, a new gazetteer from Owen Hatherley. My name is Finn Harper, I'm an architecture critic, and I'm standing in for Rachel Capel, who is self-isolating. We wish her well. Get well soon, Rachel. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest is Owen Hathley, journalist, author of numerous books exploring culture, architecture, politics, and the intersection of all those things across Central and Eastern Europe, London, and now with a new book taking on the entire of the UK. Welcome to the show, Owen. I'm honoured. Our first story is that councillors in Greenwich are challenging the Silvertown Tunnel, a controversial motor vehicles only underground road that is planned to connect the Greenwich Peninsula with the Royal Docks. This is a much contested scheme, which was initially proposed by the then mayor, Boris Johnson, a decade ago. And it has once again fallen into question, as was reported by the South East London news site 853. The council will consider later this week whether to challenge work on the £2.2 billion project. Uh, A small group of councillors are understood to be lobbying for the local authority to ask Transport for London to halt construction of the tunnel. So historically, Greenwich Council has backed the project, uh, which it claimed would cut travel time by car at peak hours by up to 20 minutes when crossing under the river. However, surprisingly, the meeting later this week will actually be the first time that the huge tunnel project has ever been formally debated in the Greenwich Council chamber. The tunnel already faces fierce criticism from locals, politicians and environmentalists who fear it will increase traffic and pollution in the area. Only a month ago, members of the London Assembly called on Mayor Khan to reveal the cost of cancelling the tunnel after he had said that scrapping the project would, quote, not be an option that is sensible, end quote, due to the financial loss it would incur. So no such figure has yet been revealed, but we know that cancelling the project would breach a contract with River Links, the company that's set to design, build and maintain the tunnel, and might incur heavy penalty fees. So, Owen, construction has been underway on this project for a year already, but campaigners seem to be stepping up their efforts for a last-minute U-turn. They say the tunnel will simply move traffic and pollution from one area to another. Do they have a point? What's your take on this? I mean, I think that the, the, the crux of it is that the mayor of London has supposedly 
committed to um, going zero carbon by, I believe, 2030, which is eight years' time. And you're going to do that while building a motorway tunnel. It's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Like, you cannot do one and the other. There's just... And I think it kind of... It sort of shows some of the contradictions of, you know, the sort of politics that someone like Sadiq Khan does, which I find um, profoundly depressing because, you know, it's so contradictory with any kind of... um, you know, any kind of decarbonisation strategy in London. Um, the, the entire thing suggests that, that, that he's not, and the mayoralty is not, and the GLA are not taking decarbonisation particularly seriously. And, you know, there's a few things more important. Um, I was very briefly um, quite active I, when I lived in the, in the borough of Greenwich, which I did for about 10 years until 2017. Um, I was active for a couple of years in the local momentum group, and we were very much involved in um, campaigning against the Silvertown Tunnel and organising and co-organising events to, to oppose the Silvertown Tunnel. And Greenwich Council was really a kind of um, impregnable citadel at that point. You know, like the other councils that would be affected by it, you know, like the Tower Hamlets and Newham, were very strongly against. The, the 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 tunnel, pretty much most of inner London councils were against the tunnel, um, and the only one that wasn't was Greenwich, and I think there's a lot of people in places like Elton, and Plumstead, who have always wanted to be able to you know to to drive under the Thames without having to get into the horrendous traffic jams around the Blackpool Tunnel, which are horrendous. Like that point, that part of the of of the justification for it is true. Um, you know, I would have thought the solution to it was making sure that less people are using the Blackpool Tunnel full stop rather than building another Blackpool Tunnel. <laughs> um, I mean, that's very much, you know, that the idea that you solve a problem like that by building another mo- by building another road has been discredited since the late 60s. Um, you know, the idea that that would reduce traffic is just the study after study after study has shown that that's rubbish. Um, there's no evidence for it whatsoever. Um, so... You know, it, it, it's a thing that finally means that you can drive from Elton to Canary Wharf without it taking two hours. You can finally drive from Elton to the, you know, to the Lakeside Shopping Centre in Thurrock. Um, and, you know, river crossings in that part of London are quite difficult. Like, there are, you know, there, there are no bridges between Tower Bridge and Dartford. Um and you know, if you're if you're not using public transport, that's a really difficult thing. And sometimes it is including using public transport. There should be there should always have been more public transport connections there than there actually are. But the idea that the solution to this is building an underground motorway in this day and age, while trying to decarbonize by twenty thirty, is just absolutely for the birds. There's so many voices calling on tfl and the mayor to to drop this project or, or to you know do something instead do a, do a bridge which could have cars on it but could also have have cyclists and pedestrians would make much more sense yeah exactly because that's the thing like replicating the blackpool tunnel you know the blackpool tunnel has like one single decker bus going under it right the, the, the 108. 108 bus which i a bus which i know well as i'm sure you do and 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 that's your lot and i've not really seen any credible suggestion that this would have any better public transport connections and um, you know, one of the things I always thought would be worth looking at again is the is is, is the Cross River Tram that um, the various tram schemes that the the dying days of the Ken Livingstone administration 
um, had. There was one that was supposed to go along the Thames. There was one that was supposed to cross the river. You know, those, those sorts of those sorts of ideas seem much more much more interesting. And there's no reason to think that they would actually be more expensive than building a motorway tunnel. Can we can we talk a bit about the the, the kind of history of the Blackhall Tunnel? Because I know in in one of your one of your many books, Red Metropolis, you talk about the the, the kind of um, partially built but largely abandoned inner city motorway um and part of the bit of that that was built cuts through charlton um and is essentially the conduit that is funneling a lot of that traffic to the blackwall tunnel and, and, and sort of responsible for that enormous congestion of cars that, that you get every morning at the entrance at the southern entrance to blackwall tunnel so you know what what's impact do you think that ring road project has ultimately had on, on london's transport why was it abandoned um you know can you just tell us a bit about that 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 chapter of london's sort of relationship with cars i mean i suppose it's it's you know it, it's along with covent garden one of the kind of foundational like the people built beat the planets type moments if you kind of look at what got built and what didn't it's also a great example of seeing where the kind of sharp elbows of the metropolitan middle classes kind of got in there and where they didn't. So, you know, it was going to cut through Blackheath. It was going to cut through just down the road from where I am in Camberwell. Um, it was obviously cutting through Brixton. And the bits that were built, you've got the, you've got the bit in Bow. You've got the bit in Charlton. And the other one, which I'd always thought was actually, if you're going to build an urban motorway, was about as good as it was going to get, is the Westway. Because the Westway managed to somehow kind of combine having this kind of elevated motorway with having lots of kind of social facilities and whatnot. And what would then, what, what would not have been called startups at that time, um, being put under the arches of it. So, um, you know, on an aesthetic level, I've always loved the Westway. Um, both being on it and under it. Um, but the other two, and uh, in, in the bits in Bow and Charlton, are just absolute kind of, uh, you know, wounds on those two areas. Um, and really what we should be doing is removing them rather than extending them. Our second story is a heavy one dealing with racism. So if that's a subject you find upsetting, maybe skip ahead by 10 minutes. So, two years ago, a renewed wave of Black Lives Matter protests uh, triggered by the murder of George Floyd by a serving Minneapolis police officer swept the globe, including London. Black Lives Matter, of course, had been an active protest movement since 2013, and wider civil rights and anti-racism campaigns date back to the invention of race as a concept itself. However, 2020, to many, felt like it could be a real step change. Organisations which seemingly had never previously cared about race suddenly were pledging kind of root and branch change there was an explosion of these kind of kind of corporate social responsibility pledges appearing online funding poured into organizations dedicated to supporting black and brown uh, individuals including in london's architecture scene where developers architects engineers and other built environment companies you know vocally committed to doing more to fight racism in their work and workplaces however Two years on, a confluence of stories are leading some to wonder if we're back to square one. 
Are the organisations which make up London's civil society still committed to fighting racism as they pledged to be in 2020, or have we lost ground? And we're asking this question because of three stories that have all come at the same time. So first, Cressida Dick resigned as London Metropolitan Police Commissioner last Thursday after the mayor, Sadiq Khan, informed her that he had lost confidence in her ability to deliver the reforms he felt were needed to address chronic failures in the police force. Sadiq Khan said he was, quote, not satisfied with the way Dick negotiated the need to, quote, root out the racism, sexism, homophobia, bullying and discrimination and misogyny that still exist in the force. Uh, however, after these accusations were made by Khan, the Metropolitan Police Federation hit back, declaring it had no faith in the London mayor. The series of scandals and police failures which led up to Dick's resignation have cast a stark spotlight on prejudice in the criminal justice system, one of the key pillars of the British establishment. But racism in the media also came into question this week. So broadcaster Netflix is facing accusations of xenophobia after comedian Jimmy Carr made genocide jokes on the platform about Gypsy Roma and Traveller communities. In a section of his Dark Material, Carr's Netflix special, the comedian made a joke about the Nazi Holocaust in which he targeted the GRT community. Now, I'm not going to repeat his comments here, but many have described them as deeply shocking and racist. And then finally, the sort of third story that we're looking at in this section, in the built environment, historian Tom Wilkinson, who helps run New Architecture Writers, which is a course dedicated to supporting budding design critics from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, tweeted this week that funding seems to have dried up for organisations supporting people of colour less than two years after all those 2020 pledges were made. So, Owen... What's all this about? Did all those Black Lives Matter pledges in 2020 add up to long-term change, or are we back to square one? If we take the, the police story first, under Cresta Dick's leadership, the Met have consistently failed to inspire confidence among the communities they're supposed to help. So what do you make of Sadiq Khan's intervention now? I'm glad it's happened. Um, would it have been better, let's say, if this had happened at the height of the protests over the killing of Sarah Everard. Um, and that that would have actually made it look like this was in response to, to, to public pressure. And of course, looking like anything is ever in response to public pressure is the last thing that anybody in the British establishment wants things to look like. You don't want it to look like a load of demonstrations and civil disobedience has led to change. That's, you know, it, it, it doesn't look good. Um, so, you know, obviously the Charing Cross um, police station stuff is horrendous, but is it particularly atypical with, you know, what we've sort of seen from the Met in the past? Not particularly. So I suppose the question of why now is that now there's a time when one can get kind of, you can kind of do it without it being an enormously controversial thing, um, you know, without getting in trouble with Labour leadership or being accused of being a terrorist by the Daily Mail or whatever. That's, you know, I think that that kind of points to some of the problems in all of this. There is no real institutional and kind of wider political support for social movements. There was a kind of moment for a bit where, you know, one of the main political parties was supporting social movements at various points and we saw what happened there. And now everyone is absolutely terrified of doing it. Um, so what you get instead is these token gestures where various kind of businesses say that they're going to be better and 
you know, people kind of review their hiring, hiring policies slightly and, you know, there's a, a sort of woker adverts appear. Um, but, you know, the, the, the fact that there will be no change on the political level seems kind of locked in for the next couple of years. The second story that I wanted to zoom in on um, is is this Jimmy Carr stuff. So, you know, the, the remarks that Jimmy Carr makes um, in his Netflix show, many have found extremely upsetting. Um, is Jimmy Carr an anomaly or is he actually representative of a, a much wider, very kind of baked in prejudice against uh, Gypsy Roma and Traveller communities? Because... Um, it was striking that the health secretary, Sajid Javid, urged people to boycott Carr, right, to, to not watch this show and not go to his um, concerts. And a Downing Street spokesperson said that the comments were deeply disturbing and, and unacceptable. Um, however, you know, the, gov the government's new police crime and sentencing in courts bill effectively criminalizes traveller groups if they pitch up on private land and gives police the power to seize property and vehicles from traveller groups. So the, I guess the question I, I have is, are, are the jokes that Jimmy Carr has made in this Netflix show that have caused all this outrage uniquely distasteful, or are they simply um, a kind of cultural signifier of a much more wider, a much more widespread and um, racist attitude towards um, Gypsy Roma and traveller communities? Well, yes, obviously they are. Um, and, you know, I, I, various people do a kind of like... I, I've seen kind of the, the terms last acceptable prejudice used about um, Eastern Europeans, Jews, Muslims, and, of course, there are many different last acceptable prejudices. Um, and one of them absolutely is, is, is this one. But I think that, you know, it is it is very, very clear that it is con widely considered socially acceptable. And the knowledge of the history, particularly the 20th century history, of um, of those communities is minimal, to put it to put it mildly. And, you know, I mean, God knows, the last thing we should be doing is relitigating it. But, you know, we all remember that one political party of the two main parties went into... 2019 election of specific policies promised to curb the rights of a particular ethnic group. And we know which ethnic group it was, and we know which political party had it in their manifesto. And, and, and you know, here we are, we're seeing the consequences of that. I mean, okay, so this is this is making me think that, you know, the, the, the thesis of this segment that, um, you know, despite all the, 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 the very laudable pledges made in 2020, you know, we have lost ground, or at least we've not made the progress that um, some maybe would have, have liked, but uh, I, I'm sort of looking around for some uh, maybe more positive stories of where things have changed, um, and may, maybe maybe the built environment is is one of those areas, or, or kind of architecture and architecture writing. Um, have you noticed any change since since 2020? Are there, are there more writers of color of different backgrounds um, getting airtime? Are book commissioners looking for a, a, a more varied community of contributors when they're, they're commissioning? Um, what changes have you seen? Well, yes and no. I mean, like, I suppose, you know, if we believe that intersectionality is real and so forth, um, I suppose one thing I often do is try and relate this in some way to my own experience coming from a working class background and then kind of going into, into journalism and into architecture. And 
you know, one of the things that that, that, that happens when anyone finds out that you didn't go to, um, you know, to go, go to particular schools, or finds out that you might even have lived on a council estate, um, is that they then want you to just write about that and nothing else. They want you to do testimony and they want you to do writing that centres around your own positionality and writing that's kind of like, as a X, this is what I, you know, this is what I have to say about Y. And I was very, very loath to do that. And I think it was probably easier for me to refuse to do that than it probably is for a lot of a lot of BAME writers who are constantly asked to do this. Um, and, you know, constantly asked to kind of um, appeal to various kinds of white liberal guilt and then put in a neat box. And I think that one of the kind of things that comes with this, you know, is that, yes, you will get more people being commissioned, but they'll be commissioned for as long as the news is the news. And they'll be commissioned to tell white people what they should do. They'll be commissioned, to, you know, in, in some way that is to do with that particular polemic. And it can take quite a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of bravery on the part of that writer to be able to kind of um, break out of that and do what they actually want to do, um, which is usually not that, <laughs> frankly, um, you know, because it's because it gets boring after a while. People don't want to, do, you know, people are complicated and interesting, and they don't just want to, you know, spend all of their time making Polly Toynbee feel uncomfortable. Much as that could be quite a laudable thing to do. You know, whether or not that's happening, the jury's out. The jury is out. You know, we'll have to see for longer than two years to see if people have managed to make the same kind of careers that would have been an offer to, 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 to a white writer. Our third story is that the pandemic has seen many public spaces closed down, some temporarily, but sadly, a number seem to have shut their doors for good. Last week, the fates of two public baths in East London were sealed. Kath Slesser, a past guest of the Lundown and president of the 20th Century Society, tweeted that the 1960s St George's Pool in Wapping is to be flattened. The pool, which was designed by Reginald Uren, closed at the start of the pandemic and has been left undrained and unmaintained ever since. Tower Hamlets Council have now announced that they're going to demolish the old pool and say they will build a new pool on the site of the old building. Also this week, Haggerston Baths, built in 1904 and featuring a stunning vaulted ceiling, has been set for redevelopment into office space and a private gym, as reported in the Hackney Gazette. The Queen Anne-style municipal building shut back in 2000, allegedly for emergency repairs, but has remained closed ever since. Now the Hackney Council-owned building is set to be redeveloped by architects Squire and Partners after the council deemed that there were no viable proposals to be found for its return to use as a swimming pool. Local residents have voiced their frustration at the decision, as well as concerns about the extension to the original building and that there is no low-cost or subsidised rent planned for local businesses in the new complex. So, uh, Owen, what is going on here? A tale of two pools, each alike, in being shuttered under the pretext of an emergency, but then somehow never opening up again. This isn't a problem isolated to East London. Countless municipal spaces shut due to the pandemic, and perhaps conveniently for cash-strapped councils, their doors seem to have remained shut, allowing for demolition and redevelopment to take place. When public health is something of a, a kind of constant concern in the, in the media, and rightly so, why are we getting rid of these spaces? What's going on? I think we're going to see quite a lot of this. 
from what it looks like to me on things like public transport, on a lot of public buildings, um, is that what we're actually undergoing is something which you weren't expected to undergo at all, which is another wave of austerity. You know, that there was obviously enormous public spending at the start of the pandemic to support incomes. Um, you know, there's been all of this sort of talk of sort of levelling up funds and so forth, which obviously wouldn't, despite the fact that, um, you know, the highest levels of child poverty in the country are in the, the are, are in the two areas where these swimming pools are, um, they wouldn't be places that would need to be levelled up because that's not how levelling up works. How levelling how leveling up works is that you... You know, you <laughs> assume that everybody in London is as rich as the bankers who also live and work in Tower Hamlets. And so, you you know, you sort of try and make, you know, Redka, uh, like, be at the level of of, of them, um, which obviously is not going to happen and obviously is a completely bollocks way of looking at the way regional inequality actually works. So what you'll see, you know, the, 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 these are... If supposedly... London has been getting too much from the public teat, um, you know, then you won't see much money being spent on swimming pools and hackney or tower hamlets. Um, you know, that would be that that that's the end of that. You've had your fun. You've got, you know, you've you've got an idea centre from two thousand and five. Um, you've got a shit ton of bankers and, and, and high rise office blocks. You know, that's that's fine for you. And, you know, and this points to some things that are actually true. London does have better public provision than, 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 than other cities for things like swimming pools. It just does. Whether or not the solution to that is let's close some in London rather than like let's have better provision elsewhere, I don't really know. Um, but I think quite a lot, getting back to what I think the point of this is, rather than just speculation, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the kind of squeeze of funding to local authorities has continued and will continue, irrespective of the public spending that was going elsewhere. Our final story is your book. Um, so our guest this week, Owen Hathley, is bringing out a new book. Um, Owen, you're, you're author of, uh, you know, endless books, Red Metropolis, uh, The Ministry of Nostalgia, uh, Owen Hathley's Adventures in the Post-Soviet Space. Um, you were edited uh, Open City's very own Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, but your new book... Modern Buildings of Britain is coming out in April and will explore the significance and apparently the divisiveness of 20th century architecture all across the UK. So tell us about it. You know, what is this book? Six years work. Six years work. Um, you know, by, for way of comparison, Ministry of Nostalgia took me a month to write. This took me six years to write. There's a lot of like modern buildings in Britain books, right? There's a lot now of often kind of picture books or guidebooks that will tell you how to find modern buildings within a fairly circumscribed radius. And it was much more interesting, I thought, to try and go everywhere and try and have a book which would be equally interesting to anybody in the country. It would be equally interesting if you're in Gloucestershire, if you're in the Scottish Highlands, if you're in Hackney, if you are in... Barnsley, you know, that would that would tell you where the modern building was. The the intensity of building from 1945 to 1980 in particular meant that there's just a huge amount of this stuff. And pretty much everywhere has something that you could kind of point to and go, this is, you know, this the, 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 this is a, a, a good representative modern building, as good as any anywhere. 
And there are kind of places in it that really um, actually, you know, it was really quite sad to see how much, like, for instance, mining areas in particular. You know, you would look for things like kind of pit head baths that were a huge kind of factor in the 1930s in particular. Like they were kind of built on the model of like Dudok and sort of Dutch modernist architecture. And there are about 50 of them were built and about two survived, neither of which are publicly accessible. Totally take the point that so much of the, the kind of non-London modernism has been lost. But even so, it's an extraordinary account of the UK you know, as you say, London London makes up what, like a fifth of it. So it's it's but the vast majority of it is not London. And you've even got like the Hermit's Castle in Achmelvik Beach uh, on the coast of Scotland, which is this tiny little brutalist bothy. Um and just the sort of the extent of the exploration of the United Kingdom that is as is is present in the book, even in six years, <laughs> feels like um just like such a such a, an amazing kind of adventure and i wondered what is there a kind of manifesto in this book are you are you trying to say something about um the kind of importance of of, of getting to know the entire of the uk like what would you say to those 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 people who who, who maybe have traveled internationally but but rarely ventured outside the m25 there's a Venn diagram there of like architecture students and like you know and and just people in the south of England is the belief that like there be dragons in the rest of the country. Um, so you know I remember like at the start of writing that book and also a little bit when I was writing um, a guide to the new ruins of Great Britain I would kind of talk to people from where I'm from which is Southampton on the south coast and there'd be this kind of like why would you go to Leeds. And they imagine that Leeds will look like Southampton looks, which is, you know, <laughs> fairly miserable. I mean, you know, it's, I, 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 I like it, but, you know, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of towns in the south outside of London actually are probably the worst for architecture in the country. Like the worst places for architecture and townscape are, you know, Slough, Luton, most of Southampton, Reading. Um, you know, that that's the Dartford, like, that's where you'll get the worst of it. Whereas because of, I guess, partly that kind of Victorian civic pride and the way that it sort of endured and for various forms of municipal socialism in the 20th century, actually you'll get far better architecture in Leeds or Hull. And certainly you'll get far, far better architecture in Sheffield or Manchester. Um, so there's a real ignorance of that. Um, and actually people in the rest of the country are very, very aware of it. Um, um, the, 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 you know, there is this kind of idea that there is London and there are the cathedral cities and there's Oxford and Cambridge and there's Edinburgh and there's York, maybe also Durham. And then everywhere else is a shithole. It's just a shithole. Why would you go there? It's a shithole. Why would you go to Leeds? It's a shithole. Sheffield is a shithole. And that, that idea is a complete self-fulfilling prophecy. That's why places accept a lot of really second-rate architecture. Oh, why would you do anything better here? We're a shithole. And, you know, that, that, this book is, if it's aimed at anything, it's aimed at kind of trying to stop that. Final question, again about the book. Um, back in London, it, I think it's really striking. You, you open the book with this huge double page spread, a double page spread of Dawson's Heights by, by Kate McIntosh, um, who is actually going to do this enormous lecture for Open City in, in, in early April. Um, and I just thought that was a very interesting move because um, Kate, uh, 
you know, she's never won the RIBA gold medal. She's never won a sterling prize. She's, she's sort of, um, in, in some ways, still kind of an under-recognized uh, titan of uh, British British architecture, both her own work, her work with her, her, long, her long-time collaborator, um, George Finch, uh, sort of stands up to scrutiny decades later. And yet she, you know, unlike, say, Neve Brown, uh, a peer of hers who was very much revered, many of his buildings listed, uh, did get the gold medal, has given these kind of enormous keynote lectures before he passed away. Kate hasn't quite had that level of recognition. And so I wondered what... Why did you open your Why did you open your book with with Dawson's Heights and and what what can you tell us about Kate? The reason why Dawson Heights, I think, is partly it's what you what you've just alluded to, which is that the great weight of great twentieth century building in Britain is by and large by people who were working for a local authority architects department or are working for one of the kind of big firms like YRM or BDP who you've never heard of. And if you go around Britain looking for buildings by the big names, you will very seldom find anything that's any good. If you go around looking for buildings by Gropius and by Marcel Breuer, you're going to find, or rather not find, because you, it's not pro- properly publicly accessible, like a house in Angmering, wherever, in, in like Sussex and like Shipbourne in Kent. Um, you know, later on, if you go looking for buildings by, by you know, Daniel Lieberskind or Stephen Hall, you'll find, I actually quite like the Stephen Hall building that we've got, uh, the, the, the extension to the, the Glasgow School of Art. You know, it, it, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting building, but, you know, the idea that the best architecture in Glasgow is by Stephen, <laughs> the last 50 years is by Stephen Hall, is ludicrous. The best architecture of Glasgow in the last 50 years is by Izzy Metstein and Andy McMillan under, you know, as, as, as part of Gillespie, Kidd and Coyer. And the best architecture of, you know, 1960s Glasgow is by RMJM. You know, it, like it's, you know, that a lot of the time... Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's not the big names. It's not the people that would appear in the architecture schools. It's not the people that there'd be a Tashin book about. It's not the people that, you know, that, 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 that are very Instagrammable or that are famous or that have taught at the AA. Um, you know, it's, it's not people that have any connections to, 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 to Yale. Um, it's people like Kent McIntosh who were municipal employees. People and 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 Macintosh and George Finch. They were, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were, and there's dozens of architects like that. And I, I, I tried when I, whenever possible, to name them if I knew their names, but a lot of the time I didn't. Um, and the other reason for Dawson Heights, I think, is because of the fact that it's got that kind of thing that a lot of the best kind of late '60s buildings have, of this combination of sort of individuality and eccentricity, like kind of the kind of regularity of it, the fact that you can kind of pick out the individual flat very easily visually. It's not just a kind of interminable monolith where each flat is the same. You can see each bit of it articulated, but it's also this image of collectivity. So it has that kind of, you know, sort of post-war modernist holy grail, I think, of being at once individual and collective. And the best modern architecture, I think, is very much about that. Fantastic. And if you were persuaded by that case for why people should pay more attention to the works of Kate McIntosh and her her unsung peers, then do buy a ticket, listeners, for the Kate McIntosh lecture on the 7th of April in Hackney. Uh, It's going to be our biggest event um, since the start of the pandemic, and we're very excited about it. She's going to do an amazing talk, I'm sure. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, grappling with these big themes with us. Um, If listeners want to keep track of 
you, if they want to get your, 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 your new book or any of your other books, where, where should they be going? Um, I mean, the book, I imagine one, one, one can get them when it's out in April and be able to get it from all good bookshops. Um, I, I don't really have a social media presence much. I, mean, I would usually plug my Twitter, but I'm currently taking a very long holiday from it. Um, but I am on Instagram as Owen Thomas Hatterley, and I don't generally do any promotion there, but I might be induced to. So, Finn, could you could you answer me a question? Sure. <laughs> uh, what does Open House have in store in the immediate future? Okay, well, um, thank you for asking, Owen. Um, loads of stuff. I mean, the, the 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 thing that we're most known for as a charity is, of course, the Open House Festival. And the, this is our 30th anniversary of that festival this year, 2022. Um, so that's going to be enormous. And um, submissions have now opened for the festival. So if you have a building... Um, or a, a kind of landscape or a garden that you want to open up for the festival for the 30th anniversary, then um, go to the website and uh, do that, you know, get in the program because it's here for you. Um, and what else is going on? Uh, we, we, we've started making this amazing series of films exploring the influence of Marxist ideas on London architecture. And the first film in that series has just come out. Uh, it's called Nothing is Too Good for Ordinary People. And it's about Bevin Court. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, it's a banging film made by uh, our very own uh, poppy wearing producer of this show and also of that film series. Uh, and then finally, I'd say that um, we're hiring. So if you want to come and work with me and Poppy at Open City, then there's three jobs that we're currently recruiting for in our festival team and um, for our, all our, of our education work as well. Uh, so go to the jobs bit on the, on the website, which is www.open-city.org.uk slash jobs. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.